0: I'm not a complicated man. I like cinema. In particular, I like to see people f***ing on film. But I don't want to win an Oscar, and I don't want to reinvent a wheel. I like simple pleasures like butter in my ass lollipops in my mouth. That's just me. That's just something that I enjoy. Call me crazy. Call me a pervert.
1: The Stream Police Podcast is brought to you by OverdueReview.com. Want something more in-depth than a sarcastic, pretentious 140-character review of your favorite movie? Read long-form reviews of movies, TV, and music from the distant and recent past at OverdueReview.com.
2: welcome to all of you listeners out there, no matter wherever or whenever you may be listening to this show. I'd like to give you a hearty welcome into the Stream Police podcast, the show where we wade through all of the filth and garbage out in the media wasteland and tell you the things that are streaming right now that you need to add to your queue, add to your list, add to your cart, whatever the hell it is that they're calling it in the time frame that you may be listening to this. You need to be watching and listening to these Things. I'm Clint Davis, the host of this uh, little program from OverdueReview.com. I'm the movies and TV editor over there at the website. A little bit later on, we'll be hearing from our music editor, Andrew Sedlak, and he will give you uh, his his takes, as always, on this bi-weekly show on everything in the music world. And uh, as always, he'll leave you with those five songs to listen to that you need to go out like right away and add on iTunes or at least on Spotify just to listen to and make sure that you do love them, but I will pretty much guarantee that you will at least like them. All right. Uh, Let's get rolling on the program today. Stogie of the week. I don't have a Stogie for you today. Didn't go out and replenish my supply, so no Stogie. we got to get right into the meat of the show. We have a ton of things to talk about, so I apologize if you were waiting with bated breath to find out what the Stogie is. I'm talking to you, Tyler. All right. Uh, I've been talking for the last couple of weeks about beloved movies, ...that you guys didn't care for. Last week I revealed some of the submissions that you guys sent in and they were great ones. And you can feel free to send those in anytime to me. I'll I'll, uh, read them on the show whenever as I get them. But I'm looking for beloved movies... That you don't really care for, and especially the ones that you really you keep your opinions to yourself a lot of times. Um, like if people are sitting around talking about a, a movie that everyone loves, and it's like in the public consciousness that we all love this movie, but you just you watched it and you didn't connect with it. You didn't feel like it was that great. You didn't understand what the what the deal was. But maybe it's embarrassing to say you didn't like it for whatever reason. Even though all these opinions are valid, uh, maybe for whatever reason you just feel like you can't voice that opinion because you might be chastised. So. That's what this show is about. So I'm going to finally give you my list of beloved movies that I don't care for. I've seen a ton of movies, been watching nonstop since I was a kid, and uh, there, there have been plenty over the years that I've watched that I've sat down with thinking that I knew going in, I know this is a classic, I know this movie's reputation precedes it, but I came away just not feeling like I had watched something that really deserved the reputation that it had carved out for itself. Or people had carved out for it, rather. So the beloved movies that I don't care for. Number one on my list. The first movie I thought of when I thought of this category is Ferris Bueller's Day Off. A lot of you might think it's one of the most classic 80s films of all time. It is always brought up on the list of the great John Hughes teenage 80s movies. But to me, it's just not that great a movie. I don't think it's very funny. I think the main character is a complete douchebag. I mean, it's about a douchey white teenager in an upper middle class neighborhood who pushes his friend around, his nice friend who will do anything for him, just pushes the guy around. Sure, he, uh, Cameron needs to loosen up a little bit, but, I mean, come on. Ferris Bueller, is this a guy you want to be taking life advice from?
0: I do have a test today. That wasn't bullshit. It's on European socialism. I mean, really, what's the point? I'm not European. I don't plan on being European. So who gives a crap if they're socialists? They could be fascist anarchists. It still wouldn't change the fact that I don't own a car.
2: If Ferris Bueller, if we could look forward in Ferris Bueller's life, I don't think the guy would have accomplished very much at this point. He'd probably actually be sitting in a closet somewhere talking about movies and television to an audience that he doesn't even know if they exist or not. All right, anyway, skipping past that. No, Ferris Bueller's Day Off is my number one beloved movie that I just don't care for. I've never liked it. I've watched it three, four times. And I just, you know, because that's what I do. Even if I don't like it, I'll watch the movie again because maybe I missed something. Maybe I didn't really get it. But that one I just don't, you know, a couple parts do make me laugh. The secretary always makes me laugh. But other than that, I just don't like the movie, don't like the lead. I think the character sucks.
0: Oh, well, he's very popular, Ed. The sportos, the motorheads, geeks, sluts, bloods, wastoids, dweebies, dickheads. They all adore him. They think he's a righteous dude.
2: Uh, another beloved 80s comedy that I do not care for and don't think is that funny, The Princess Bride. I hope my wife continues to not listen to these shows because this is like one of her favorite movies ever. And it's a lot of people's, one of their favorite comedies ever. And I get it. It's a nice story. And you get the grandfather to, reading the story to his, his grandson. And, you know, it's just the whole thing. And you have got these great actors that are involved. But I just don't. I mean, Cary Yules or Elves or however you say his name. I've never known how to say his his name. Just not a fan of the guy. He's just stiff as a board to me and just not a very good lead at all in this movie. Maybe it would have done better with somebody else captaining the ship, but uh, The Princess Bride, to me, just an overrated movie that I will never understand why all the, the fuss about in the comedy world. Another beloved movie that I didn't care for, The Sound of Music, bores me to tears. It's too damn long. And the the whole, like, last half of the movie... Is is garbage basically. Do you remember anything from the last half of the movie? I mean, at all. Anything at all? The every part that's classic that you really love is from the beginning of the movie. The the opening scene. I love the opening scene when the opening titles come in over Julie Andrews spinning around on that beautiful hilltop with the blue sky behind her.
0: The hills are alive with the sound of music with songs they have sung for a thousand years. Who
2: doesn't like that scene? And who doesn't like when she's introducing herself to the kids and they're singing all the songs together and, uh, you know, 16 going on 17 and all these great – they're Rodgers and Hammerstein, great songs. But the movie itself just got at the end. I mean, get me out of there. When, once intermission hits on that play, I'm pretty much ready to go home and I won't miss anything. So Sound of Music I'm going to put up here too. I'm also going to go with another Best Picture winner called Braveheart. Braveheart, to me, one of the most overrated Best Picture winners ever. It's just got a lousy romance story that gets in there and ruins the whole thing. We don't really, we didn't really need it. It's got a lot of revisionist history in it too, from everything that I've read, and I just don't, I don't get it with Braveheart. It's just not, it's just not my movie. Um, Pixar movies. I, usually, I'm, I'm generally a fan of everything that they've ever done. But last week I mentioned one of our readers, Pete, sent in that he thinks Finding Nemo pretty much sucks. And I agree with him. Finding Nemo, to me, is the most overrated Pixar movie. Second most overrated Pixar movie, and you're going to probably throw your headphones down when I say this, is the movie Up. I think Up, past the first ten minutes, is such a pedestrian and average Pixar movie. Just not that great. I mean, the whole premise, flying the house to South America. I mean, it's, it's a beautiful idea for a movie. And this guy living out his wife's ultimate wish. But I just I mean the whole the mix of wacky characters the villain I don't like the villain at all in this movie. The talking dog is cool but I don't know it's just I never thought that movie was as great. This was a Best Picture nominee. This was one of those few animated films that's been nominated for Best Picture and I just I don't think it deserved you know Toy Story 3 deserved it. Beauty and the Beast deserved it. WALL-E should have been nominated for Best Picture but Up got it and like I said, past the first, the first 10 minutes are a masterpiece in themselves. But other than that, I just think Up is is very overrated uh, as far as uh, beloved movies that I don't care for. A few more on the list for you. I'm going to throw in Dr. Strangelove. I'm a Kubrick fan. You're a Kubrick fan. We all know that he's great. We love him. But that movie, to me, just not as funny as people make it out to be. It's consistently ranked, if not at number one at least in the top three like, greatest comedies of all time, when you look at the old critics' lists of the best comedies of all time. Dr. Strangelove's the funniest movie ever made. Sure, it's got really funny parts. Peter Sellers is, is fantastic in it, but is it the funniest movie ever made? No. I mean, we've, we've seen political satire, I feel like, done better than that in the years since. And it's drab to look at, too. So Dr. Strangelove, to me, is not one that has high replay value, and I would not put it on my all-time favorite movies. Um, Another movie, Point Break. I have never understood why everyone in the last, like, 10 years got obsessed with Point Break. It just, out of nowhere, people started rediscovering Catherine Bigelow's mid-90s or early 90s, whenever it was made, surfer action movie with Keanu Reeves. And it's just one of those movies that I know people only like it because it's campy and stupid, but there, to me, are better, campier action movies from the 1990s and from the same time period than Point Break, like Face Off. Face Off is a better movie. It's funnier. It's wackier. It's got these over-the-top performances. Nicolas Cage, one of his best, uh, you know, over the most over-the-top performances of his career. Uh, it's a better movie. Raw Deal with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Better, more campy, more ridiculous movie. Con Air might be the campiest, most ridiculous movie I've ever seen. Is it a horrible movie? Yes. But it's got an awesome cast, and it's funny. And to me, it's better than Point Break. And campier. And then cliffhanger with sliced Stallone. I'll take that one. That's a, I think that's actually a pretty good movie. But it's uh, to me again does the same thing Point Break does. It doesn't have a character named Johnny Utah. I'll give it that. But still, I just I've never understood why Point Break was one of those movies that became in vogue a few years ago and like everyone uh, on the internet got in on the joke together that this movie was awesome and that we forgot about it. It's like no, it was forgotten pretty much for good reason. And they even they're remaking. Point Break. As we speak, they're remaking the movie. I don't understand it. Maybe the new one will be better, but I just... Come on. See, even my dog, if you can hear him barking out in the other room when I bring up Point Break, he loves the movie. He thinks I'm full of it because I'm talking about this movie being overrated. Alright, I've got three more beloved movies that I didn't care for to give you today on this list. I'm going to go with an animated uh, Japanese movie that people really widely consider to be one of the great foreign movies ever made. Akira! From Japan, I'm a I'm a fan of these kind of films. I like anime movies, and I like the great ones especially. I, I gave The Ghost in the Shell one of our highest honors um, on the website just uh, not that long ago. I think that's an, a, a, basically a perfect movie. But Akira, I have watched numerous times, and I, I've probably I think I've watched it three times, and I watch it over and over because I know its reputation. It's so great. It's just so innovative in the way it looks. And I just have never, it's never done anything for me. I do think there are a few scenes that are stunning. The animation is absolutely stunning. But I get the characters mixed up. I don't think the storyline particularly makes any sense. I don't really get what they're trying to, what the commentary is. I don't get it. But Akira, maybe it's just a little bit too highbrow for me. But this is not not one of the movies that I love. And they've been talking about making it into a live action. Leonardo DiCaprio has wanted to make that movie into a live action version for years now. And it's never gotten off the ground, and that's probably why. Because every studio he takes it to, they're like, "What? Why do you want to do this? This movie sucks." I mean, who cares? The, the animated movie, just just stick with it. If you love those kind of films, maybe you'll love it. But I just I, I've never understood Akira. Two more: The Sting, another Best Picture winner. I watched it. I went into it thinking this is going to be one I'll really love um, because it's Robert Redford, Paul Newman. You know, they're like getting into hijinks. They're they're rip. They're con men basically, and. I was just bored to tears. I just did not think it was very good. Outside of the theme song, which everyone knows and loves, just very pedestrian movie. Not one that really stuck out in my mind at all. And finally, another Best Picture winner, and this was one that going into it, I thought I was going to love it. The French Connection with Gene Hackman. This movie, outside of the car chase, to me, is just overrated. It's It's, I don't know, it's not very... It's not very attractive to look at and listen to. The sound editing is not very good at all. Um, there's just the characters just saying weird things. Do you pick your toes in Poughkeepsie? I mean, I just don't. I don't get it.
0: Have you ever been Poughkeepsie? Hey man, come on, give me a picture. let you talk about Let hear you say it. Come on. Have you ever been Poughkeepsie? You have been in Poughkeepsie, haven't
2: you? I want to hear it. Come uh, on. Yes,
0: it. Yes, I've. You been there, right? Yeah, yeah. You sat on the edge of the bed, didn't you? You took off your shoes, put your finger between your toes, and picked your feet, didn't you? That's say it. Yes. Now I'm gonna fust your ass for those three bags and I'm gonna
2: nail you for picking your feet. And for Popeye Doyle, sure, he's got the cool hat and Gene Hackman's a badass and I love him, but The French Connection, not one of my favorites and I would call it one of the more, um, one of the best picture winners that I enjoyed least. Uh, and, and I was one, it was one that I thought going in, man, I'm like, this is gritty. This is like the original crime, car chase, R rated. You know, uh, '70s thriller that that got critical acclaim, and I was just I walked away disappointed from it. So there's my uh, uh, list of movies that I was able to come up with that are beloved that I just had no affinity for, despite watching a lot of them numerous times. So do you have any thoughts on my list? If you do, send me an email theclintdavis at gmail dot com. T H E Clint Davis at gmail dot com. All right, uh, recent movie releases. I want to talk about a couple films that, that hit theaters recently that I went and saw. I'll give you a couple of quick takes on them. First off, I'm going to start with Matt Damon's space exploration uh, survivor movie, The Martian. This is Ridley Scott directing it, and it's got a huge cast. And the cast of this movie, I feel like really they all did a good job bringing this film together. Um And Matt Damon did strong work, as always. We pretty much expect nothing less from him at this point. But The Martian, the thing that I really, I think, liked about this movie especially is that it bucks all of the cliche things that always happen in every space movie. I mean, think about every like space exploration movie you've ever seen. What always happens? There's always a list of things that happens. There's always like one character who has to die to save the rest of the crew. He has to sacrifice his life and be a hero so that everyone else can live, and he can always be remembered as a hero. I say he because it's like always a man that does this. Um, there's, I mean, there's just there's so many things that always happen. The, the family left back at home, and the isolation felt by the characters. That's always a big thing they zero in on in these movies constantly. Sometimes there's some romantic tension between um, some of the astronauts in space. If there are males and females, I feel like The Martian just bucked all those cliches and did not follow any of them. Like there were any of the things I was expecting to happen going into the movie, just based on seeing other a lot of other space movies. Those things did not happen. Uh, but the the drawback of The Martian is it is so disconnected from human emotion um, that really, if you go and see it, don't expect to feel like any stirrings. Don't expect to feel moved at any point because you're not going to be moved. It's not a moving film. Um, it's not a movie that is going to make you like it's really not going to make you stand up and cheer. And it's not going to definitely make you cry at all. It's just not a it's not an emotional movie. It's a disconnected movie, I would say. Um, Andy... Sedlak compared the movie to Robert Zemeckis' Castaway. He said it was Castaway in space. My friend and our music editor, Andy, said that. And I agree with that basic premise because it really is just about how are you going to survive? How are you going to survive on Mars by yourself? but the difference between the Martian and the Castaway and Castaway is Castaway he had no help at all and the Martian he's got you know he's talking to NASA and they're solving problems together the Martian is really way more about problem solving than it is diving deep into the psyche of this guy who is trapped on Mars whereas I felt like Castaway was really a character study pure and simple on Tom Hanks's character and and all the the mental anguish he goes through being alone and becoming friends with a beach ball or a volleyball and all this stuff so uh, but, but The Martian, it, while it doesn't do very much in terms of characterization and character development, uh, the movie is pretty interesting to watch from a problem-solving standpoint. And I'll say that if you're a geek and if you're a science geek, this might be like porn to you. This is the geeky, geekiest movie I think I've ever seen. Um, and, I mean, I'm including Star Wars, Star Trek, Lord of the Rings, any of those movies. This is the geekiest film because it's like real-life geekdom. I mean, this is, these are things that could really happen, I suppose, and people are getting off on the, so, the solving of the problem. How's he going to get water? How's he going to grow potatoes on Mars? That's what people are getting excited about in this movie. Let's do the math. Our service mission here was supposed to last 31 souls. For redundancy, they sent 68 souls worth of food. That's for six people. So
1: for just me, that's going to last 300 souls, which I figure I can stretch to 400 if I ration. So... I got to figure out a way to grow 3 years worth of
0: food here on a planet where nothing grows. Luckily, I'm a botanist.
2: If you like problem solving, you like pragmatic uh characters, then go see The Martian. I mean, it is it is interesting and if you see it in theaters, the visuals are just stunning. It's a very good-looking movie. Um and it's it, it's a funny movie too, you know. It's not deadly it doesn't take itself very seriously. So, I'd recommend The Martian. I thought it was pretty good, but if you're don't, if you going into it wanting a big character study and a lot of emotion, then you're not going to like it, because it's not like that. It's not like Interstellar. And one other one that's come out in the last month uh, that I went and saw recently is Black Mass. This is the uh, biopic of it sounds weird to say biopic of somebody like Whitey Bulger, one of the most notorious murderers in uh, American history, but that's basically what it is. It's a movie about Whitey Bulger's life and his career in the mafia and his eventual um, and his eventual uh, arrest, which just happened a couple of years ago after all the things that he did in the 1980s. Uh, so Black Mass, no question invokes some of the Martin Scorsese uh, flavors of gangster filmmaking. It's, sa- it's set in the 80s. So it's got those costumes. It's got classic rock music all over it. Um, but it it doesn't have nearly as much life as Scorsese's best movies, Goodfellas, his best gangster movies, Goodfellas and Casino, it doesn't have the kind of life. Those movies just, like, that's what I've always loved so much about Goodfellas and Casino. They, they just buzz with life. I mean, the camera's moving constantly. There's narration taking you from scene to scene. The music is in every scene. The characters are having fun. They're enjoying this life. Black Mass is more like he just takes, the character Johnny Depp plays, Whitey Bulger, he just takes himself very seriously. And everyone in the movie takes themselves very seriously. They they handle these this business with—it's um, it's a weighty business, and they can feel the weight bringing them down. So it's not a fun movie. Like, I would say Good—I think Goodfellas is a fun movie, even though they're, they're killing people, there's blood flying all over the place. It's a fun movie, and it's an energetic movie, and that's one of the reasons that movie is so great. Black Mass is not like that. And after seeing it, I would not call it an essential American gangster film. Uh, at all, that it's been really a a while since we've had an essential American gangster film, and I would not put this on that list, but what I will say is that Johnny Depp puts on an acting clinic in this movie, and if you're a Johnny Depp fan and if you're an acting fan, I I would recommend watching Black Mass, especially when it comes out on DVD. You don't need to rush out to theaters and see it, but this might be the weightiest performance of Johnny Depp's career, his whole career. I'm thinking back on all the movies he's done. And I'm like, is this the best acting he's ever done? And I think it might be, because what is Depp's signature thing? And I'll, and I'll say right away, I've never seen Ed Wood. That is one of the all-time Depp movies that I've always wanted to see, but I've just never been able to, never really found a, a copy of it easily and, and haven't watched it yet. So I, I don't know that one. So if you're thinking, well, Ed Wood's better, then it, it might be. But of all the Depp movies I've seen, and I've seen a lot of them, I feel like this is his best performance. What does he usually do in movies, though? He gets lost in these weird, char- weird-looking, weird acting, talking characters. So it really keeps him from doing a lot of dramatic, a lot of dramatic development because he's t- it's t- too busy just being strange, and you're just marveling at how weird he is. Uh, but this character is not a goofball. This guy takes himself very seriously, and he's doing serious things. He's killing people. He's ordering hits, um, and, and it lo- allows Depp to really do some great acting. And the, some of the scenes, I mean, he is just frightening in this movie, the look that they gave him. It's just, it's its scary. Um, and I thought that that this car- that this Whitey Bulger was just very intense and that Depp did a great job with him. The rest of the cast, it's a huge cast. It's got a lot of good actors in it. I mean, there's Benedict Cumberbatch is in it. Uh, Kevin Bacon's in it for a minute. Adam Scott's in it for a minute. I mean, there's a lot of people in this movie that are, that are good actors, but none of them are used to their ability. I mean, really, like none of the big-time actors that fill up this cast do anything that really warrants them being here. I mean, any actors could have done the things that are here. The script is very thin as far as the supporting characters go, and that was my biggest disappointment in Black Mass.
0: And Morris, what did you marinate the steak in? Because it's out of this world. You're killing me with no. It's
1: It's a family secret.
0: Come on. You gotta tell me that. Come on. You could do it. Come on. (laughs) What's the family secret recipe? It's, gr- it's ground garlic a little bit of soy That's it? Yeah, that's it, that's it. I thought it was a family secret <laughs> It's a recipe No No You said to me This is a family secret And you gave it up to me, boom don't look to John because he's not going to help you. You spill the secret family recipe today, maybe you spill about me tomorrow. Is that something? Maybe that's a possibility. So I was just You were just saying. Just saying gets people sent to Allenwood. Just saying. Could get you buried real
2: quick. So those are my thoughts on uh, a couple of movies that have just hit theaters in the recent uh in the last few weeks i should say all right i'm gonna go ahead and take a breather here and uh pass the microphone over to our music editor andy sedlak and let him tell us uh, what's going on in the music world and what his recommendations for the week are take it away andy
0: hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot
1: I've been totally enamored with the movie, The Best Years of Our Lives, made way back in 1946. It was Best Picture winner, three hours long, about three World War II vets coming home after serving overseas in that tricky transition back into everyday life. There's not a fake or phoned-in minute in that entire movie. I just loved it. But I'm not here to talk about movies. I'm Andy Sedlak, music editor At OverdueReview.com, go to the site to find a recent look at Randy Newman's Good Old Boys. That was made in 1974. Give the album a test drive and give it a fair listen. This is a record uh, crystallized by its nuances. Generally speaking, it's about Southern living, Southern heritage, Southern struggles. It has this odd dynamic of being simultaneously tongue-in-cheek and yet slowly heartbreaking in certain corners of the record. Uh, But there are plenty more reviews on the website as well. I've looked at stuff by everybody from Tom Petty to Bon Jovi to Hank Jr. From uh, Ghostface to Hootie and the Blowfish to Iggy Azalea. There's actually quite a bit there. But let's get into it. I won't start with breaking news, but it's important news nonetheless. News that surely caught your attention when you first heard about it, the news is that Prince is back. Universe. Excuse me, I meant the Prince, as in the Fresh Prince.
0: Listen, boys, don't mean the bust jump bubble, but girls of the world ain't nothing but trouble.
1: Yes, yes, the fresh prince. He and his DJ, DJ Jazzy Jeff, have sold more than five million albums in this country, and is so often noted. They were the winners of the first ever Best Rap Performance Award at the 1989 Grammy Awards. The Fresh Prince and Jeff would pursue other projects really not long after they released what I consider to be their best song. There's
0: an air of love and of happiness, and this is the Fresh Prince's new definition of summer madness.
1: The Fresh Prince would later be replaced by an actor named Will Smith. And after not sniffing anything musical for a decade, Smith returned with a feature verse on a track last week. Kind of a hot track, really. It's by a group called uh, Bamba Estereo. Who are they? They're out of Colombia, the country. Cool Latin dance track. It is called Fiesta. Listen to Big Will's return, courtesy of Bamba is stereo. Hold up. All right.
0: Hola, mamacita. Oh, yeah. Go get me a birra. Oh, yeah. This track is a heat. I couldn't let the beat go by without a feature. Oh, yeah. Because it's hot shit. Only, you know me. OG, high class, and low key. Trying to find me a Sophie Baguetta. i a dance floor to Because me, I like beauty. ain't you. Colombiana, lace.
1: Yes, out of the gate, Smith rhymes Mamacita with beer rub, but it gets better after that. And if you haven't spent a lot of time listening to that type of music, I recommend it. It's, uh, it's party music, and come on, Will, Big Will brings the party. I heard the track, and I figured, wow, nice little surprise, kind of neat. But then I read that Smith has 30, 30 songs New songs that are contenders for a new album. He told Zane Lowe that he's in the studio every day. Every day. 30 songs. And after a decade, music may consume even more of his schedule because he's also hinting at a reunion with DJ Jazzy Jeff. And when I say reunion, what I'm really talking about is a tour. A new Tour, Will Smith, DJ Jazzy Jeff, promoting a new record. Unreal. Nothing is definite yet, by the way, but... But this should not be mistaken as a a, a fallback occupation of any kind. Smith's career is not in the tank. Yes, there have been a few clunkers. uh, But his role in the Suicide Squad movie next year is sure to be just a a box office success. The geeks will be lined up around the block for that. Uh, Part of me says that I'm proud of Smith for diving back into his music. Do you know how much shit he's gotten over the years Yes, he's safe. He just is. He's a safe MC in a genre that is most often rewarded for edge and grit. And this is something that he addressed extensively on his last album. It was called Lost and Found. came out in 2005. Lots of guests on that album, including Snoop Dogg. And it's better than most people remember. There's a song on it called Mr. Nice Guy.
0: He's a nice guy. How you doing? He's a nice guy. Good to see you. He's a nice guy. How you mama num? Mr. Nice Guy, relationship advice guy. Light on the vices, priceless smile. Look at the eyes. Got the look of a survivor. Father, this by Eminem, but
1: take it by the rim the upbreaking classy. Big well just get another twenty mil, walk right past me. I'm a nice guy, why Y'all harassing me. Dude is clever. I would not want to battle Will Smith. People be messing with me, testing me, every with me. I wanna
0: send a message to him, teach him a lesson, quickly, they publicly addressing me, disrespecting me, heavily. They better be lucky
1: the way my blessings affect me. But <sighs> calm down, Willie. The bomb On that last Lost and Found album, by the way, he handles a number of themes, including 9-11, religious oppressors and stalkers with surprising grace. People will always make fun of Will Smith and his music. I understand that.
0: Yeah, all I know is I'm upstairs. I'm listening to my Will Smith CD and I've seen all these flames going everywhere.
1: Sometimes he makes it very easy for you to make fun of him. But I'm still eager To see what he comes out with next. Part of you probably is too. Hell, we've already gone so many rounds with this guy. There's so many memories. And in the social media age, if Will Smith drops a new song, I don't know if we'll let it go unnoticed. I'll tell you, I hate doing this, but another performer passed away. Billy Joe Royal died October 6th at the age of 73. He died peacefully in his sleep at his home in North Carolina. Here's his most famous song. joe was living in cincinnati when that song reached the top 10 in 1965 it was in cincinnati where he heard himself on the radio for the first time royal was pals with roy orbison and that's who encouraged him to get going on a solo career had peaks and valleys of course but he began to make a name for himself in country music um, in the 80s. Now listen to this. He signed with Atlantic in 1985 and released a song called Burned Like a Rocket. The track climbed the country singles chart and reached the top 10 in January of 86. Then the space shuttle Challenger exploded. And his song carrying the unfortunate title Burned Like a Rocket was dropped by radio. Sometimes life just sucks. Well, we like His last charting single was in 1992, almost 30 years after Down to the Boondocks hit radio waves. God bless, Billy Joe Royal. Here's a cool jam that I recommend that you might have missed the first time around. When Butler of the Arcade Fire released a solo cut called Anna. It was originally re- released in January, but is gaining a little more attention now thanks to a video starring... The incomparable Emma Stone. As a matter of fact, Butler doesn't appear in the video at all, just Emma in some pretty whacked out dance moves. Pray that
2: lost, lost. Hail to the cross.
1: It Actually, it reminds me of the old Jay Giles band song Piss on the Wall. Wow, 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 wow. The Jay Giles Band, a group that belongs in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Speaking of which, 2016 nominees were just announced. The Jay Giles Band not among them. Here are the nominees. Nine Inch Nails, N.W.A., The Smiths, Deep Purple, Janet Jackson, Chic, Chic, uh, Steve Miller, Chicago, Shaka Khan, Cheap Trick, The Spinners, The Cars, The J.B.s, Los Lobos, and yes, how does the Jay Giles Band not get a nomination? Fans can vote on this. I voted for the Cars, NWA, Steve Miller, the Smiths, and Deep Purple. Those are just my favorites. But I think Na- Nine Inch Nails, probably a lock. Yes, also probably a lock. I think people will uh, will be voting for yes, for sure. Tell me who you like, and tell me why. Send me an email, Journal at com. Speaking of email, I received an, uh, something from Pete in... Uh, actually, Pete, I don't know where you were writing from, but but he hit me up and said that he'd been enjoying the podcast. He checked out Compton, the Dr. Dre album that I talked about a few weeks back, said he enjoyed it as well, but said something I thought was really interesting. He writes, I'm not sure if people are ready for hip-hop to return in full force. That just struck me, and he may have a point. But he goes on to touch on numerous uh, EDM artists that he's into, which I admit, Pete, is not really my forte. But I'm going to listen to your recommendations, and, uh, and I'm going to touch on them in a couple weeks. He also touched on a band from Middletown, Ohio. Um, he had a lot of great things to say. Again, I, I want to touch on everything uh, in, in a couple weeks. Now, here are five songs strong enough to get you through the week if you strike out everywhere else. These are Top Shelf. Go ahead and take these as artist recommendations too, not just song recommendations. I'll start with a fairly new one. We found love. That's Rihanna featuring Calvin Harris. It's got a little EDM flair there uh, for Pete. I'll move on to a recording roughly 50 years older than that. Who Do You Love by Ronnie Hawkins.
0: I walk 47 miles of pop wire, use a cobra snake for a necktie. Got a brand new house on the roadside, made from rattlesnake hide. I got a brand new chimney made on
1: top, made from a human skull. Now come on, baby, let's take a little walk. But tell me, who do you love? Who do you love? And now, how about Metallica's cover of Whiskey in the Jar? It's on the first disc of Garage Inc. For my for my there. Whiskey in, the in a related recommendation, dedication by Thin Lizzy. The- Came so Clint will laugh at that one, I'm sure. Uh, there's a bit of a backstory there. Uh, finally, finally, I recommend. Not that much has changed by Joe Ely for you writer types, people that live and breathe songwriting. Um, it doesn't get much better than this. Not that much has changed. It's all just rearranged, like
0: a picture in your mind of a love.
1: And listen closely to the end. It wraps up dealing with a similar topic that I opened with when I spoke about the best years of our lives. Guys, that does it for me. Be good, all right? Uh-huh.
0: Uh-huh.
2: Thank you very much, Andy. As always, very much appreciated. And, I mean, he, those those five songs, man, good mix of tracks. Once again, it's not often that you're going to hear Rihanna and Joseph Ely thrown into the same uh, category together. Um, as far as a music playlist goes. And a Joseph Ely recommendation, I got to say, man, I swear, his version of The Road Goes On Forever, if you've never heard it, I know Andy has heard it, and I think he loves that song as well, but Joe Ely's version of The Road Goes On Forever, that is my favorite song ever recorded on some days. You know, on some days it's your favorite song, on other days another one's your favorite song. That is one of those that rotates in and out of the stable of, I would say, favorite song of all time Status. Just love that recording. It's so good. And dedication, man. That did uh, that, that did make me laugh. That brings back, <laughs> it brings back memories of a name long forgotten. That's for sure. We'll leave it there. Um, all right. Let's uh, keep rolling here on the stream. Police, part of what we do on this show, and well, I guess it's in the title, is recommend things that are streaming right now. And I've got one for you that you might have to do a little bit of work for, a li- just a little bit. And when I say a little bit of work, I mean like basically no work. At all, I mean, typing into your uh, URL box on your browser there, PBS.org, or just googling PBS American Experience Walt Disney. Because this documentary, I finally was able to sit down and watch it. PBS American Experience. If you've never seen it, it's this long-running documentary series. They're very they're, they're serious movies. They're serious profiles of great American people, great uh, great not not always great, but memorable American moments, important American moments. And they dive deep into them, and they're great films, really. Um, I've really never seen one I've been disappointed with. And this one that they did on Walt Disney, um, just, I guess it was last month, it was in September was when they debuted it, is one of the best I've ever seen as far as a biography documentary goes. Walt Disney, a four-hour, it's a four-hour film about Walt Disney. So some of you, that might bore you to tears, but... If you're like me, when I heard they were making a four-hour documentary on Walt Disney, my reaction was, why only four hours? What the hell? There's so much to go into there. Uh, but <laughs> this this movie I thought was fantastic. It, it goes so deep into the guy. And right now, you can watch the movie for free on PBS's website. You can stream the whole thing right there on their website. If you've got the PBS app on Roku, Sorry, but they had it on there for a little while and then pulled it off. But you can still watch it on their website right now, the whole thing, for free. It's like 3 hours 42 minutes or something is the final uh, runtime. But as I said, it goes deep. The uh, director of this film was uh, a woman named Sarah Colt, and she has proven to be a documentarian that really is interested in going deep into the character of each person that she profiles because she did another movie on Henry Ford for American Experience also. So talk about two weighty very important Americans of the last 100 years, Walt Disney and Henry Ford. I mean, really, two titans of the industries that they helped build. But what Sarah Colt does is she builds stories and interviews to this complete portrait of the person that she's profiling. So she'll include a short sound bite that you feel has no bearing on anything. But then 30 minutes later, you realize why that clip was there, because she was building to this revelation as to... Wow, I mean, why did she mention that story where Walt Disney was walking through the halls, coughing loudly, making sure the employees knew he was there? Oh, wait, an hour later, it makes total sense why she included that little anecdote, because you know, right, because of this this thing she just revealed about what uh, you know he was doing later as the company got bigger and bigger. Um, Obviously, this is not a movie that was produced by Disney, because when you think about a documentary about Walt Disney. And there have been plenty of them over the years that have talked about Walt Disney books written things like that. But usually they're so sugar-coated and the, you know Disney is such a tightly controlled company as far as it's um as far as its reputation and its name goes and in the name of its creator. And for good reason, you know. I mean they they're not going to sell clips of the movies to some movie that's just going to lambast Walt Disney and make him sound like this villain who was controlling and, and whatever and sold his uh, employees down the river. This movie, though, has all the Dis- it has the the movie clips from the films that Disney himself produced. So that adds a lot to it, you know, because usually when you watch a documentary that's like unauthorized or something, you don't get those kind of clips. You just get interviews from people who barely knew the guy. And it's just the whole thing feels cheap. In this case, it does not feel cheap at all. He, she's got interviews with a lot of people that worked there when Disney was running the company, animators, um, ink and painters, all kinds of things. And the biggest coup of the film, I felt like, was she got an interview with Walt Disney's son-in-law. He was uh, married to Diane Disney for a long time. So you get that personal side and you get the, the stories about Walt like on vacation and just the times he was away from the office. And those go a long way. Because the movie does feel negative at times. I would say that overwhelmingly the movie's positive as far as making Walt Disney look like, and this is what he was, a pioneer of the industry that he was in and a guy who just had a restless imagination and a restless heart. But, but we know that he had a dark side as well, and the movie goes into it a lot, does not sugarcoat things. Um, Colt does not go into things, though, that she does not have evidence to back up. So, for instance, she does not mention all the rumors that have been floating around for years that that Walt Disney was a very anti-Semitic guy. That has been stated by a lot of people, but there's really no evidence. There's no recordings of him talking bad about Jews, and there's no uh, pamphlets that he wrote in his youth talking about exterminating Jewish people, you know, like Henry Ford who she did the movie on, she did go into his anti-Semitism in that movie because she had evidence to back it up that he was an anti-Semite and people knew it and he was open about it. Uh, But with Walt Disney, she doesn't go into things that are speculative. She goes into things she can back up with evidence. So I have to say, Walt Disney's a guy I always admired a lot. Always grew up thinking of him as one of my heroes just because of, like I said, the imagination and just the things that he stood for. But this movie dampened my fandom for him a little bit because I did not know about during the Red Scare that Disney was one of the guys that named names. I didn't know that. And that hurt his reputation with me a lot when I was – and the reason why he did it. It wasn't because he was this rah-rah patriotism guy. It's because the people that he was throwing under the bus were people who had wanted to strike out on their own, leave the company, Um, and he felt like they were betraying him, and the guy held a grudge for his lifetime. He never forgot someone who crossed him. And it just made him look petty. And basically that's that's one of the things that this movie does. And she's got clips to prove it. She's got recordings of Disney himself and the things he said. And it just does a very good job of painting an even-handed portrait of a, a whole person, a complex person. We've all got our negative aspects, and certainly a guy as larger than life as Walt Disney did too. But right now you can go to pbs.org and you can stream that movie in its entirety. I completely recommend it. It is uh, a very, very good, it's an outstanding um, four-hour portrait of a guy that really I think we could all learn a little bit more about because he's one of the icons of 20th century America.
0: When it was finally released in August of 1942, Bambi stood out as the most ambitious feature-length film in the history of the studio, an artist's rendering of the natural world in all its beauty
1: and peril. Mother! A generation was and still is traumatized by that moment in Bambi. Mother! Mother! And it's done almost in pantomime with the snow falling... Fearless filmmaking. Absolute fearlessness.
2: Um, let's get to a couple other streaming recommendations for you. I've got a couple of Netflix picks for you. One big one right off the top. I saw that Netflix just in the last couple of weeks put on one of my all-time favorite movies. I would put it in the top 20. My top 20 ever made. Five stars all the way. Boogie Nights. Paul Thomas Anderson's 1997 film about the 1970s adult film industry. And this is one of those ensemble dramas that is so perfectly written and done. The characters are all well-rounded. They're all well-played, with maybe the exception of Mark Wahlberg. He's definitely the weakest actor in the bunch. Still does a fine job, but, you know, he's the guy that threatens to derail things. But you've got Burt Reynolds giving the best performance of his life, Heather Graham doing outstanding work early in her career, Julianne Moore once again shows up, Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman does one of the best performances of his career, in my mind, and one of the most heartbreaking performances. Performances ever. William H Macy. He's funny. He's he's sad. Don Cheadle. Same thing. It's a great movie. Boogie Nights. If you, for whatever reason, wrote that one off, like oh, it's a movie about porn. I mean, it's going to be awful. Not at all. This is the guy that directed There Will Be Blood, Magnolia. Um, just he's done some of the greatest films of the last twenty years in movie in in movies. And Boogie Nights was really the one that put him on the map. Um, and it's on Netflix now. Couldn't recommend it more. It's absolutely one of my all-time favorite movies. Very good drama. Um, and it's got some funny moments, too, but it's just, it's just a great movie all the way around. Another one on Netflix that's always been one of my very favorites, and this one's kind of divisive with people, Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange. Uh, I mentioned this one because we got Halloween coming up, and next week I'm going to be talking about the best horror movies that right now you can stream on Amazon and Netflix. Uh, and A Clockwork Orange is not going to be in the horror section, but it is a scary movie. It's a frightening world that this is set in this uh not so distant future, and it's just it's a movie where the youths of the world are getting over on the elders and they're basically the police are so lax and so crooked that uh, nothing's getting done and no one goes away and there's no justice um, and you've got this scary group of teenagers who just want to go out rape and kill people for fun and get away with it um, and and the government tries to. Introduced this mind control program that anytime uh, the, main, the, the kid in the movie, Alex, played by Malcolm McDowell, anytime he thinks about doing something evil, he thinks about you know, forcing a woman to have sex or he thinks about killing somebody, he gets uncontrollably ill. It's sick to his stomach, and starts throwing up. So, it's just a great movie about you know, can you control people? And uh, and and it's just a it's a great it's a great film, and it's so it, the vision of it is so unique that it looks unlike any other movie. I feel like that has still been made since. So, A Clockwork Orange and Boogie Nights, two on Netflix right now that I would recommend watching right away. I love both of those movies dearly, and have watched them many many times um, on my uh, on my DVD and Blu Ray shelf. Uh, Amazon Video, if you've got Amazon Prime, i got a couple picks for you here. I'm going to go lighter than the ones I did on Netflix. First off, the date is coming up, all right? 2015 is here. The Cubs are in the playoffs. And Back to the Future Part 2 predicted this moment exactly. Uh, Back to the Future, the whole trilogy is on Amazon right now, streaming if you've got an Amazon um, subscription. And, and it seems weird to say like you need to watch Back to the Future, but we're getting to that point. Kids are getting younger and younger. I mean, people that were born in the mid damn, people that were born after Pulp Fiction came out are 20 years old this year. Okay? Think about that for a minute. So they might not, they may have never seen Back to the Future and the whole trilogy. It's one of the best trilogies ever. It's one of the most fun series of films of, of all time. And, you know, there are flaws in the storytelling and there are plot holes, but who gives a shit? They're so fun. Those movies are so great the back to the future trilogy could not be recommended more all three of them watch them right now if you've got amazon video and you've never seen them and even if you've seen them go back and watch them again cuz they just get better every time you watch and you notice you know mr strickland in the background here and you know i mean just little things that they that robert zemeckis put into the movies that are just great touches uh, and one more amazon uh, instant video pick for you another comedy it's called dear white people this movie came out last year it was kind of an indie flick Um, about a college campus, a a wealthy, basically East Coast college campus, and how the black and white students kind of relate to each other, get along with each other. It's got a very early Spike Lee feel to it, but not quite as angry. I don't know. I mean, the movie itself is more fun, I would say, um, and funnier. But Dear White People's got a serious message behind it, Um, and it's a movie that I feel like deserves to be watched and needs to be watched. And I think it's, it's got a, it's, again, it's got a very good vision and is unlike a lot of college films that I've seen out there. Uh, it's, it's more weighty than a lot of college films that I've seen out there. So Dear White People, I would definitely recommend giving that one a watch, especially if you went to college or if you're of that age. It's just, it's an interesting movie and it gives you some things to think about. All right, friends, well, that is just about going to do it for another edition of the Stream Police Podcast. When we come back next time, as I said, I am going to talk a little bit about uh, the best scary movies that are streaming right now across Netflix and Amazon, the ones that you will be able to stream before this Halloween or as uh, Halloween is coming up because when the next episode drops, it will be right around Halloween time. Uh, But we'll take a look at that. Also, I'll give you some more early fall TV reviews, I'm going to talk a little bit about ABC's Quantico and CBS's Life in Pieces as well, um, and I'll probably be talking about Fargo and the new season of American Horror Story uh, when we pick up next week also, so we'll get back to TV a little bit more after a movie-heavy episode this week. Thank you guys so much for listening, I'm Clint Davis again, make sure you uh, uh, follow me on Twitter at Mr. Clint Davis. email me, TheClintDavis at gmail.com T-H-E, ClintDavis at gmail.com I'll talk to you guys in a couple weeks. Be safe out there.
1: The Stream Police Podcast is a production of OverdueReview.com. Since 2013, the staff at Overdue Review have written thoughtful, unpretentious opinions on hundreds of movies, TV shows, and music from every era. Overdue Review, better late.